Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto Locust Walk on a crisp, beautiful November morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and faculty colleagues, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. You guys can join us if you'd like to jump in here. Give us a shout. Give us a call. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there. Great way to reach out. You can send us questions, complaints, observations, whatever you got. At WMoneyBall is a good way to reach out to us. We have a regular show. We've got some football to talk with Stuart Chase here at the bottom of the hour. Very excited to have him back here. I always do that, Chase Stewart. Chase Stewart, dadgummit. Chase is coming on for the first time in a year or more. He's been on the show a number of times. Love the work that he does. And then we have, what do we have at the top? We have some basketball. We have San Francisco, University of San Francisco coach coming on at the top of the hour to talk basketball with, of course, NCAA hoops kicking off last night in glamorous fashion. Gentlemen, lots to talk about. I've got some things to talk about. I'm curious, though. Got to put to bed the World Series. Come on. Yeah, that hasn't been put to bed yet. Not, it? it hasn't. Last Wednesday morning, we were discussing the odds and how Astros are fairly heavily favored. So it is congratulations to the Nationals. Pulled it out yeah. in a triumphant fashion. For some reason, maybe because I knew Adi would be here at least for the first part of the show, I was in an information perspective this morning. So what have we learned? So since last week, as you said, uh, the Nationals beat Houston in Game 7. And from a how good are these teams... I think we learned nothing. Nope. We learned I nothing. Think, not, certainly not over the season. I mean, no, no, no. Right. I just mean conditional yeah. on where we were. I don't think I'm going to say, wow, if they were to play a hundred more, our infinite number more identical series as this one, that the Nationals would win more than 50%, less than 50%. I have no reason to believe these two teams wouldn't be fairly equal. Did we learn anything about Verlander? Well, Verlander didn't pitch. Verlander didn't pitch in Game Seven, so I'm saying we didn't learn anything. Granky was Granky. Oh, Granky was right. yeah, of course. Granky was terrific. Did we learn anything about Granky? That was so satisfying to watch him pitch. He My was God. extraordinary. And actually, the one question we would have, I mean, this is the this is of course the age old question: What's the point of a series to figure out who's better or who just wins? Right? I mean, there's sports has a certain competitive well, component to it. Right? The good news is sometimes <laughs> sometimes you figure out both. Sometimes it's just obvious which team yeah, is better in right. a series. Like for example, I mean, the only good news for the Season. The Yankees, the Yankees were just better than the Twins. The yes. Yankees, no, but it's not just. Yep. The, I'm not saying they would win a hundred out of a hundred, but the Yankees were a better team than the Twins. In this case, um, I'll go back to Cade's point about Granky. I think what it shows, you know, look, it, it was our generation. We saw Greg Maddox for years throw 87 to 90 miles an hour, and guys just couldn't hit him. And he was obviously the same era as Roger Clemens, who threw high 90s, and guys couldn't hit him. And obviously, from an our, literal our generation, Nolan Ryan throwing high nineties, and even in the mid forties, and guys couldn't hit him. There are a lot of ways to win in baseball, and I agree with Cade. It was extraordinarily satisfaction to see a shell of himself in terms of his pitching, you know, his strength of his arm, Zach Greinke, because Zach Greinke was a power pitcher, and he figured out how to be uh, unhittable. And I thought it was wonderful it, to it, see. You know, I'm, I'm not the bigger 
baseball fan on this show, and, but so I, I notice I, it's noticeable to me when things jump out to me that's particularly enjoyable as a non you know rabid baseball fan. And watching him pitch was really enjoyable, especially so, in contrast with the guys that came in behind him. Right. You start taking him for granted. Well, what's interesting about it from the managerial perspective is they pulled him in the seventh, even though he was essentially flawless I, until I then. I wanted to ask y'all. Well, not only the pulling, well, not only the well, he he, he hit a, the, a home he run and a walk on base straight away. Wait, well, well, there's a home run and there was a walk, and there, this led to. Immediately, the the yank. So the question is, there's no data on this, unfortunately. There's a, just a sense that guy's an, an, an aging pitcher uh, deep into the into the into the pitch count. Actually, it wasn't even that. I think it was about 85 pitch, pitches, which is, I, is maybe, maybe fewer. At that. Um, the basic idea is: is there information in this? And clearly, the Astros felt this was the signal to, to pull him. Well, but the, I don't think that's Astros, evidence-based. I mean, the the the, the manager, manager felt of course, that right, way. Yeah. Um, but I I I, I wondered. I've wondered. I was sat in one game this year in person, and what you can't help as an analyst, but you you see these pitching decisions, and you wonder if there are models behind them. Now, I'm, I'm sure they're not using the models, but how good could a model be that just gave you basically? So, paper I wrote in grad school with George Wu was on regime shifts and the psychology of detecting regime shifts, and we used to motivate it with exactly this application. It's like when does a manager know? To pull his pitcher, when has the regime shifted, or when does he perceive the regime has shifted enough? We could well, build they clearly, a model. They clearly perceived it, but the problem with it is that there isn't any experimental data. And here, I would beg a team, maybe a team that has no real chance of winning, to actually try to experiment. Think about these situations, and when they get into them. Toss a coin, and if it's A, you keep them in for another you know, 20 pitches. If it's B, you yank them and see if there's well, a result. Before I get to the point I was going to make, could you just tell our listeners why, in your opinion, experimentation is necessary? Why not just observe when they yank and when they don't? And I, I, know the, I think I know the answer. I just want to know why you. Why do I need a randomization here? Why can't I just do an observational study of yank versus not well, yank they, and see they, what happens? They, they try that. I mean, the problem is the confounders, and that's the real issue. So what would be a confounder So the confounder mind? is the, the pitch count, the, the, uh, the depth of the lineup that you're, you're, you're looking at, and you, you, you want to kind of control for those, and it's very hard to do. You, you get tired as the game goes on, but I'm not, the real question is, is, is there information in the kind of the slight collapse? Let me, let me, I mean, that's the question I'm just, asking. I, I, want to, I want to make a point here that that's a bad learning environment, come to think of it. In the, in, let me give you an example. In the NFL draft, we teams always want to move up to grab their guy if they're scared someone's going to get them. So one of the problems here is that they can never learn that they're wrong, essentially. That's right. So in, if, you can, if you sit tight, if you don't make the move, which is what the prudent analyst would suggest. If you sit tight, you can be proven wrong because someone might come in ahead of you and get your guy. So you might be right, you might be wrong if you sit tight. If you take the action, you're never proven wrong because you never, you never, there's never an opportunity for someone else to, to you never know that they so, wouldn't have got it. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. So let me just say, with the pitcher pulling situation, it's the exact same thing. Yes. You, you can be proven wrong if you sit tight. You can be proven, the guy might get shelled the next batter. And so you can learn, well, I shouldn't have sat tight. I mean, if you pull him, you're never going to know that he might have been okay. That's so right. What, it, I'm, it, what I'm saying is you can't brilliant. learn. I mean, you can't you learn. You can't learn. Well, so I, I think you can, So, but not with the data we have now. That's right. So this is what I was thinking about. So randomization is one option. But I know this will never happen. But suppose whether it was a mathematical model that the manager could see or it's what we do in marketing all the time. Imagine you had dial data. Just I'm just fan, I'm thinking of a fantasy world where the manager is sp- is turning a dial. I'm 90% confident in the pitcher now, 80%, 70%. Imagine we had this auxiliary data set where essentially at some point the manager f- 
50-50. So they're right at that fence. And then we saw what the manager did. What they did doesn't matter then because we have this additional piece of information, yeah. which we yeah. don't normally have. Yeah. So to me, I agree with you. It's a bad learning situation, but we could think of you auxiliary data. You could improve it. Exactly. And this is the kind of thing you need to do when you have these bad learning environments. So that's a fantastic idea. Nobody's going to No, no. Do I it. just said I no one's it. going I'm, to spin no, I, a dial, but Eric, you could. I love it. I love it. And, and, you know, the thing about baseball is that they do have these potential labs. They've got minor leagues they could do these kinds of things in, and some teams do more of this. But they are the only only major sport that has all these places they could run the experiments the only, that they wanted the to. The only piece of information you could maybe look at, I, this is bad proxy data, but this is what we do in marketing and other fields when you don't have the data you wish you had. How many times has the manager been on the phone? How many people are up in the dugout? And I'm saying if you use that as a proxy of where is the manager in terms of 60-40, 70-30, there are other proxies like, you know, are there two people up in the bullpen? Are they ready to come in? Uh, but I agree with you, Adi. Ideally, you would randomize. But we didn't. I don't think we learned that much in this situation. Well, I mean, so I, th- I, think, one, one, I think there's a possibility that the managers are taking out pitchers too early and that their signal and that they're – that they're over, they're using overusing. This is a, this is something that they see something like a, a home run, a walk, and they completely uh, flip. Of course, we've seen very high profile reverses of that. There was that famous uh, Pedro Martinez being held in the game too long, even though he had started to of falter. Course, of course, there will be errors on right. both sides. Uh, there are tremendous errors, and that's why I think it's rigorous. Uh, only way to really analyze it with the rigorous experiment. Okay, but I have just decided for sure there it has to be that they pull too quickly because of the learning environment. That's right, yeah, and that's yeah. a strong, strong hypothesis given the feedback. Given the censored nature of the feedback, they are going to pull too soon because that is the direction in which they can never be proven wrong. Um, uh, what other sports, fellas? Well, so I was going back to my learning again. So let's talk about something that happened in the NFL this week. And we can talk about it given Shane's not here. So the Patriots got beaten fairly soundly yep. by the Ravens this week. And so I started to look back at, so what did we learn? Well, first of all, the Patriots are 8-1, and one, so they're still obviously a very, very, very good team. But when you actually look at who they've beaten, I'm now actually more convinced that we have learned something. I mean, if you think about it, the only two teams that they've played that actually have a winning record is they played the Bills, and they beat them closely, 17-10. to 10. And they've now played the Ravens, who they lost to 39-20. to 20. You could say the Steelers, who they beat early on in the season, but the Steelers you know, are now back to 500. I think this is a situation where we have actually learned something about the Patriots, which is a team with a very good defense. First of all, the Patriots are not scoring 40 points. They're not scoring 40 points on the Ravens. They're not scoring 40 points on the Bills. They're not scoring. They're they're just not. And so I think that's, to me, I'd be interested to see. I know the Massey Peabody numbers. I can see them up on the screen. I've learned I don't think the Patriots' offense is as good as I originally thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the Patriots' defense is quite as good as I thought it was. Even though that was a very unique offense they were playing? Well, it's a great point. So what what may end up happening is the teams that threaten the Patriots the most might be a team like what, uh, the Ravens with a Lamar Jackson. Certainly Pat Mahomes, you know, if he's healthy, can certainly run the football quite a bit. 
Um, we may end up seeing that in the NFC. You know, if they end up in the Super Bowl, you know, would they have trouble against a Russell Wilson, although he doesn't run as much as he used to? Would they have trouble against a Dak Prescott-led Cowboy team? So you're right. It might there might be something idiosyncratic. Well, but at the end of the day, they haven't. In my view, they haven't played nine and, games. And they've played a lot less than nine real games. That's interesting. And they do have because the NFL does a nice job of evening up schedules over the course of the season. The fact that they had a super easy first half means that they have a difficult second half. Well, we're we're going to learn more. Their next games, I mean, they have to play the Chiefs, the Texans, the Cowboys, and the Eagles coming up. I mean, that's... Can I point out that I did watch... I watched two football games almost Was completely. that one of them? That was one of them. I also watched the Giants uh, and the Why? Cowboys Why game. Why did you watch that one? Well, because uh, it was on Monday night, and the Eagles uh, <laughs> are dependent, were somewhat dependent on the, on the Dallas mates. On okay. losing. Um, and, uh, but one thing that I thought was interesting about the Patriots, and you guys pop in, and they, the Patriots seem to be very unaggressive in terms of going for touchdowns rather than field goals. Particularly uh, yeah, deep in right. the, yeah, and yeah, I thought yeah. that was surprising, considering the Ravens are so much the opposite. Why? So why? Because you well, because least, of all the all the praise that Belichick gets for yeah. yeah I mean, it seems it was awkwardly but didn't conservative. He, it, he's the he's the one who says he doesn't care about fourth down charts and he just guesses everything you know with his intuition. Yeah, he's there the was guy. I forget there was Honey, a fourth he, and one play. He hold on, hold, to hold on. You're goal. questioning. You're questioning Bill Belichick. Of course, I am. Wisdom. I, I, Come I on, man. He said data. that he just trusts his experience. He goes <laughs> yeah. with the context. But, of his but I, what I'm do, trying to do now is point out that this you was a colossal mistake. Bill Belichick. What are you talking about? So isn't it our job to point out the the, the negatives that that the, the, these were field goals that were opportunities for touchdowns and opportunities for winning? Look, we we, we PFF does a nice thing. They kick out this evaluation mm-hmm. every week on right. coaching decisions, expected points added or lost, and Harbaugh has done really well all season long. And Belichick's not at the top of that list. He does a million things right, a million. And he's had done some very aggressive fourth down decisions. He's made some very aggressive fourth down decisions in the past. But it's kind of not his thing. It's, he's not a philosophical thing. Harbaugh and the Ravens have a philosophy. And, 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 and the beauty of that is it's a very small edge. But if you have a philosophy and you're systematic about it, those small edges add up. But you keep t- describing this as a philosophy. Doesn't everybody have a philosophy to win games? Yeah, and is it the philosophy? That's of, a goal, not of a philosophy. Making, <laughs> that's not a goal. Come on, man. Well, no, but I'm the trying to make is I'm how make, you go about. I'm, what I'm making a point is, is that this is going to win more games. There's no. It's a stochastically dominant strategy. No, Why according, would you prefer? According to you, who yes, are you? Of course. You never played football. Ah, right, right. I never, I never played. Football. This guy's won more national champ, more Super Bowls, than any coach, and you're questioning him on what's what's the right well, way ask, to win football. Let me ask you a question: Is there any? I don't mean yes. I don't mean, yes. <laughs> I don't mean necessarily during the game. But is there any chance that Belichick is playing the long run here? That he wasn't actually, at some point during that game, he's thinking, okay, I could maximize my chances of winning this game by doing certain things, but it might not maximize my chances of winning the Super Bowl. For example, I decide I'm, let me give an example. I'm down in the game. Most teams would start throwing the ball more, start throwing it down the field more because we have to score. But that's going to put Tom Brady at risk, and therefore, I'm because we don't have a great offensive line protecting him, therefore, I'm not going to do this. I would rather us lose this game and go 14-2 and two instead of 15-1, and one because I want Tom Brady healthy not on November the 2nd, I want him healthy on February the 2nd. So I absolutely believe, at so, I didn't say to start the game, at some point during the game, he might be saying, if we can win this way, I'm all for it. 
But if we can't, I'm just trying to give him credit for something that could be true. It's, it's possible, though it does remind me a little bit of the paranoia that surrounds the Astros. Everyone thinks the Astros are like stealing signs and doing all these things because they're just paranoid about them now. And there's a little bit of a, that's just assume our starting place is Belichick is doing the right thing and figure out how that might be. I, and that's not really what you're saying, but it has a little bit of that flavor. On the other hand, yeah, he's, he's sure for sure his goal is to win the Super Bowl. It wasn't to beat Baltimore in the middle of the season. Now, he, he would like to have home field advantage in the playoffs, and that's not guaranteed. You know, you lose a game, you might lose some more games, you might lose home field. But Tom Brady's health is vital to that enterprise, and if he thought that was at risk, sure. That's, that's all possible. Moreover, we know we know because Chris Collinsworth told us, because Chris Collinsworth talks to Bill Belichick, that he plays experimentally with his defense during the regular season to build out capabilities he can use later in the season. So, you know, I was having this conversation with a Ravens fan yesterday, our, our buddy Joe Simmons, who's a rabid Ravens fan. You kind of would rather this be a season, if you're pulling off the Ravens, where they didn't play the Pats in the exactly. regular season. You'd rather not give them that rep. Because it'll be interesting if they do see each other again in the playoffs, how Belichick approaches that differently. And of course, after the game, there were all these stats that they were saying up, you know, what happens the second time that a team plays Belichick in a season and teams with different quarterbacks, running quarterbacks. I, I like think f- that I think that was less impressive than we thought it was. I thought that was like a big thing. And then Matt threw some information at us that said, you know, it's not quite as overwhelming as you'd think. The second time around when Pats, they're three and six in playoff rematches versus teams that beat them in the regular season since 2001. You would think, I mean, I would have thought that they would definitely have a winning record. I thought it might be even dominant. You know, you just, again, kind of you just revere, right. you just assume that he's going to do these right things. So, I don't, but what do you what do you learn about the Ravens? We're focusing only on the Pats. What about the Ravens? That was, that was well, people were so I mean, excited let me, about Let me turn that. it on to you. Your messy Peabody didn't really move. Well, we bumped the Ravens up by about a point. We didn't a full move. Point? We, yeah, no. yeah, we did. We we didn't move the Pats, but we bumped the Ravens up by about a point. I think. Yeah, they jumped up a point. So they slid up a couple spots, but more importantly, they jumped up a point. So no, we we. I mean, I can't. I I, I don't want to defend the model too much, but I mean, we adapted. Right, but you didn't move. The, you did not yeah. move the the, uh, the Patriots. Down. No, the Pats. The Pats didn't come. Down. We'll put it this way. I let me just say. I would say my update went as follows for the. I'll call it the AFC because you know a couple weeks ago we were talking. Wow. You know, the NFC seems pretty exciting. There's the Packers. Forget that they played horribly this week. The Saints, the Rams, the Eagles, the Cowboys. There appears to be a lot of excitement in the NFC. We're thinking the AFC, it's the Patriots and, you know, maybe the Chiefs if Mahomes gets healthy. But now I think we look at the AFC, and all of a sudden, it's not that obvious. Like, in other words, well, let's let's ask the over or the bet here. I'll at Right now, I'll give you the Patriots or the field. Just to make the Super Bowl, not I'm not talking just to get out of the AFC. I think two weeks ago, probably a large number of people would have taken the Patriots in that bet against the entire field of the AFC. Meaning, you know, they're likely to have home field. They're probably going to win their first playoff game. So now they're in the AFC Championship game. They have to just win one game for which they have home field in the AFC Championship game. So right now, as we're standing here, are you taking the Patriots or the field to make the Super Bowl? The vile, the serious contenders would be obviously the Ravens and the Chiefs, especially when they get Mahomes back. Beyond that, I mean, how much do you like the Texans? Pre- presumably, they're serious enough. So those are kind of the three teams. You're by the way, they're going to have to be two of those three to make the Super Bowl. Yeah. If, the, if the if it goes by the way it is now, it would be like let's call it Patriots Texans in the quarterfinal matchup, and then the Patriots would pay the winner of. Let's I, call I know it. what I'm going to say. I'm going to jump in. I, I'm taking the field. 100%. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a fan of the field bets in these situations, just by philosophy. Well, by the philosophy. I think there's 10. percent It's going to be some 
one of the team other than those yeah, three. Yeah, no, you got you you forget to unpack the residual. Yeah. I, I I agree with that. The betting market by the way has the past slightly favored to to against the field. They're slightly favored, more likely than not. Minus so I wasn't, I'm not too I mean No, look, you're right on. It's a good 50-50. It's a good over under. Yeah, well, again, let's just go back to let's assume they're not going to be the wild card team, right? Can we assume that they're going to be one of the division winners? So that means they're not going to have to play the they're going to be one of the top seeds. So what does that yep. mean? They're going to have two games to make the Super Bowl. Do you believe there's more than 70% in each of those games? If And the answer is probably not. But if you do, it's easy to get to 50%. You know, and if it's, if you're, especially if you're, if you're saying, well, they're going to play a, te- I mean, are they really going to lose to anybody but the Chiefs or the Ravens? Probably not. So maybe they're 80% in that first game, 60% in the second game, which is where you get right to around 50%. What about on the other side? What about on the NFC side, which is just so much more open? Well, I mean, you know, which team, you know, I looked at the Packers. I watched a fair amount of the Packers game. They looked terrible, absolutely terrible this week. The Chargers kind of, you know, beat them fairly soundly. So I think that probably, and the offense looked terrible. I don't know. I mean, I think the I think the Saints are the elite team right now in the NFC. You know, I think they look really good. The Saints look really, really good. And now that Drew, in some sense, I hate to say it, this is the best case scenario, scenario for them. Teddy Bridgewater came in. They won every game. Drew Brees is rested. Maybe Drew Brees will be better, a better Drew Brees at the end of the season now because right. you know get some time off. Get some time off. It's like you know when Deflate Gate happened. Brady's like, you mean I only have to play twelve games? <laughs> when to, I'd like to play on twelve games only every yes, year. Th- this those, is fantastic. Those guys don't need reps, right? Uh, Vikings, Niners. Niners have been such a fun story this year. You're ready to write them off? I don't know. That's that's Seahawks. A- I mean Russell Wilson. Well, I just the said Eagles, could they get back? Of course. I mean, t- unpacking the residual in the NFC is more interesting than the AFC. There's a lot of there's a lot of possibilities on the NFC side of things. There's uh, any of those teams could make the Super Bowl. It's mm-hmm. entirely possible. Well, let's talk about the other end of the season. NCAA basketball kicked off last night, and my gosh, they did it in dramatic fashion. So Kansas and and Duke played the opening game, and then Kentucky and Michigan State, number one, Michigan State played the second game so and then everyone played around the country as well are are you are you paying any attention to that do you care about that how does it strike you well it gets back to my theory about information so duke won by two points but the part that shocked me about it was that they only won by two points and let me say why um from what i understood i listened on sports radio on the way in this morning kansas turned the ball over something like it was either 26 or 28 but some very large number of times which led to like 29 points for Duke, and Duke only won by two points. So, no, understand, I'm a Duke hater, so I'm going to look for anything that suggests maybe they're not as good as everybody might say they are. But again, um, I don't think I learned anything. Those were two close games. Uh, Michigan State lost by a little bit to a team that's also in the top five, measured with error. Duke and Kansas played a really close game, two top teams, measured with error. I didn't learn a thing. Mm-hmm. They're both. They're all four good teams. How are about you, that? Are you excited about it? Um, I was excited that they started the season with these games. But again, college basketball. The difference is, is that you know. All right. So now maybe Kansas, you know, loses the first game. So now maybe they go twenty-seven and five instead of twenty-eight and four. It doesn't really affect no. their seeding. It, it's not going to affect you know in college basketball, as you know, Cade. As long as you're like in the one and two line in the NCAA tournament, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say with certainty. It's not with certainty. These four teams are likely to be in the top eight teams of the country at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. So I just don't think. Yes, I, I'm excited to see it when good teams play, and I watched a little bit of it. But 
it doesn't get me excited in the sense that it's not in that informative and it does, it's not actually that predictive of what's going to happen at the end of the season, mm-hmm. in my view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. College basketball is a long season. Mm-hmm. Well, they're I, certainly fired up around here. Penn? Penn, I mean, they're What are the expectations for Penn? Well, I mean, this is where we bring our experts in, but I mean, they, I think they, they want to win the Ivy League championship for sure. So they've been in the tournament. Two yep. years ago, they made the tournament, I think, and they've been very competitive in the Ivy, obviously. So, And their coach has been on the show, been in the studio with us before, supporter of these kinds of efforts. So, yeah, we need to pay a little attention to, to I mean, Ivy. I think my, my forecast has been we'll be seeing more from the Ivy League in college football and basketball than so we've ever seen before. You have an informed basis for that opinion. What is that informed basis? Well, I mean, <laughs> not nothing so much with basketball. It just seems to be. Um, but the basic sense, the informed base that I have is that in football, the recruiting has been extraordinary mm-hmm. in the last five years relative to the previous years. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just carrying that forward. Um, the Ivy League could never get top-ranked recruits in football. Mm-hmm. And now there's typically about 35 in sprinkled around the Ivy Leagues, mm-hmm. concentrated at you know three or four schools. Um, and I would guess that something similar is happening in basketball as well. I don't actually have the data, but what for whatever reasons, the Ivy League is able to recruit much more national profile level athletes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's only going to get stronger. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of it is just because um, there's more history now of people coming from the Ivy League and going to professional game i think also you know the fact that there's i'll call it a thousand channels on television so if you want national visibility you can get it in an ivy league game not the same way you're going to get it if you're going to duke or kansas and i think actually scheduling has made a part of it which means is if you go to penn are you going to play as many tough games as if you were to go to a let's call it a, a big 10 school no like the Dukes and the Kansases and the Kentuckys of the world do schedule Ivy League teams. So if you're Penn, you may actually have three or four games a season where you can actually showcase yourself right. against the top but, teams. But, you know, I also think that there's a, there's the next layer is equally important. If you think about it, there's only a slight uh, upper, upper crust of basketball that really genuinely has a strong shot of being professional. There's the next level for which basketball is your, your focus, your obsession, but... It also matters what happens to you when you graduate. And I do believe that the, the, the value of an, of an Ivy League education is maybe more widely understood, appreciated. And I also think the Ivy Leagues are doing a better job at, at funding the athletes but also, and giving them much better financial packages that they used to. But also, obviously, another quick thing is that there's probably really two tiers of players, too, right? Because most college players that are going to go pro are one and done. So right. they play for one year. So you could make an argument that if you're not going to be a one and done player then where would you like to go play college basketball? Well, the Ivy League's not a bad choice if you're not going to be a one-and-done player and your goal is a short-term route to the NBA. And mm-hmm. my guess is the pens of the world, the Ivy League teams, Stanford, etc., do extremely well once you eliminate all the one-and-done players. And that's not a bad place to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fellas, before the break, I want to give a shout-out to Carnegie Mellon and our friends over there in the stats department who have put together a sports analytics conference. They did a, the third version of it. They've done three years of it now over this past weekend. It's out there and really impressed with what they've had, what they have going on with the community they've built, with the speakers they had. It was a lot of fun. It's really cool to see how much that community is exploding. And I would just strongly encourage you guys and anybody else who's interested in sports analytics to keep an eye on that conference. So Ron Yurko, friend of the show, in-studio guest on the show, Sam Ventura, another student there, former student there who's now running analytics for the pens and his affiliated faculty there and then rebecca nugent faculty there have put together this conference and my gosh there was some impressive stuff came through there so 
for example, Paul Sabin at ESPN gave a paper that was on – he's using plus-minus for, for football. You know, we have plus-minus from hockey and they have plus-minus for basketball. No one's really done it for football. It's a little more complicated. He's got this impressive Bayesian framework, and he's able to start pulling out individual values. He's able to start um, telling the relative importance of the different positions in a very sophisticated way. That's ESPN, by the way. That's not some inst- educational institution. They're doing some serious work at ESPN. Uh, Meredith Wills, former guest on the show who's doing the baseball work, you know, that she came on our show and talked about all that she's done, and it, she pretty compelling evidence she has that the drag on baseballs is lower this year, and therefore, you know, they go farther. Amazingly, that story keeps on getting more interesting. Beginning with the playoffs, the drag changed, and it looks like they didn't use the same batch of baseballs. They went back to probably regular season 2018 baseballs for the playoffs. So it's just, un- I mean, yeah, and so they flew less far. And so there are teams, I mean, it's possible the Nats wouldn't have did what they'd done what they did if they didn't <laughs> provide baseballs from 2018. Yeah, I, I wasn't there, but one of the things that, that, that is important is to figure out how much the difference in drags really translates out into well, distance. it's like they, they, they do estimate those things, and it's like four feet or something Depends like on so how much, there, right? There, so, there, were, there may have been a, a, a hit or two look, that would well, have been gone out. Well, I don't we, actually, want, we had more people there. I don't, there. I don't, I don't want to hear, hear, yeah, hear obsess on yeah. Meredith's talk. She's going to be at the Wharton Summit. I want to say a little bit about that as well. But just some super sophisticated stuff you guys would have been impressed with. So there's a woman doing work on tennis, and she's building a model, you know, a generative model of what happens in tennis shots. I mean, she's building from scratch a parametric model on Stephanie Kobelchuk. Yeah, she, super, she came to Moneyball Academy. Is that where she ago, talked yeah. with you guys? She's down in, I think she's down in Australia, so yeah, it's hard to get her up here. <laughs> um, Katie McKeough, a Harvard stats student. Who's your who's your uh, colleague over there at Harvard running all these stats students? Mark Glickman? Mark yeah, Glickman, yeah. Glickman. She's a Glickman student, and she does growth curves. And she's working in with Olympic athletes. She's working on Olympic athletes. But it's super interesting, helpful work for predicting where they're going. And, again, she's she's using some functional form to get some traction on that. But it's very flexible. And so it looks like she's doing some really interesting work that I think would apply to our understanding of, say, NFL quarterbacks. And so it's just this kind of stuff from all over the place. Super impressive. Love what they're doing. Um, let me also say that the Wharton students have put together a great conference. This is the second or third year? Of, third year, I think it is. Third year of a completely student-based conference, and it's going to be this Friday. And it's not just sports analytics. It's sports business, really. But it's they sports have, business they have, with a little analytics. With a little analytics. So they've got an analytics component to it. And you guys are both participating. I'm going to be involved there as well. I mean, they couldn't have asked me. I didn't have anything to do with this panel. They just put this panel together and come in and ask me to moderate it. I'm like, I can't say yes fast enough. So Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus is on there. Josh Hermsmeyer is on there. Sean O'Leary, who's the CEO of Edge Sports, is on there. And our longtime friend, Aaron Schatz, all on just one panel. It's just one hour of the day. You guys have fancy talks. You've got Annie Duke coming um, on. I'll be interviewing Annie Duke yeah. and, uh, and Eric. You'll I'll be, uh, be David Blitzer, who's a co-owner, of course, of the uh, Sixers, the Devils, and Crystal Palace, and Scott O'Neill, who's the president of the Sixers and the Devils. Great fun. Great fun. So it's, it's just, I mean, these are, you know, it's, it's, Rebecca's involved at Carnegie Mellon. She's faculty, but it's largely student-driven and student-run. Yep. And then we here at Wharton, these students have really done it. We're not even talking about MBAs. We're talking about undergrads have put together this great thing. And these are, you know, I, I think it's telling this new field. It's not too surprising that the real driver is coming from the younger folks, undergrads and graduate Well, one students. thing about the CMU conference is just the 
incredibly young age of most of the speakers. Oh yeah, you you uh, you we could have added in Samir Desponder, yes. one of our students yeah. here, also really and, young, and one of your current students. And my current students yeah. also was a finalist, and I think he was the. I was my uh, my information was he was voted most uh, popular by the by the crowd. Jacob Ritchie, with the, with <laughs> you, the, you won the popular with the, vote with the player Elo. Yeah, well, the player Elo. I I, I was thinking I mean, we're, we have to get out of here, but I just want to say about the player Elo. It's 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 a great you know it's a great idea when as soon as it's written down I mean you don't even need to read the abstract it's a title alone you're like oh yeah that's great but but yeah. but that's in spite of there being thirty years of an entire huge sabermetric community who look at every corner of the game not getting there and then you do something that looks instantly obvious that is insightful all right fellas that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball we still have three quarters to go come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Standard time now, no longer daylight savings time. A little, little brighter getting going this morning. Kate Massey hosting this morning with Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Going to lose Audie here in a second to the classroom. If you want Audie, better jump in here soon. Mm-hmm. You guys can jump in. Anytime, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or email us businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball. At wmoneyball is the handle up there. Reach out, ask us questions, jump into the show in on any topic you'd like. We are rolling into the guest segment of the show in this half hour. Chase Stewart is joining us, talking football. Chase is the owner of Football Perspective. He's been writing about football since 2001. He is one of the great football Twitter follows out there. His handle there is at FBG Chase, at FBG Chase. Chase Stewart, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on. And it's beautiful right here in New York City today. It's a, it's up here in the Northeast. We got it. This is a good time of year. And we got a good couple of draws on the days here. It's a, it's beautiful fall. Perfect. So, Chase, welcome back. Um, I, I want to get a little background on you because it feels like at least I haven't talked with you on the show for a while. So I want to remind everybody where you're coming from. And also, the more I follow you and the more I read your stuff, I'm just more impressed. And so I'm like, how did this guy get so good again? So can you give us a little background about how you got going in the world of football analytics? Well, I, I've been doing it for a long time, and that's that's the biggest secret to getting good quickly. I don't know how good I am, but I'm better than I used to be. And I think if you, the longer you do anything, you get better at it. And so I started as a fantasy football writer in 2001. And, you know, that, that was a really interesting time in the fantasy football world. It was really ascending into becoming the popular game it is today. Mm-hmm. A lot of fantasy football is about statistics and understanding patterns and, and understanding NFL history as well and trying to figure out how do you predict the future, what stats are predictive, what's the best way to analyze the game when, when players are injured, what is that going to mean, how good is their replacement going to be. When a player changes teams, what does that mean? How much is he a product of the players around him and how much is his innate skill? And so I was a, a fantasy football writer for you know many years, and I still do a little bit of that today over at footballguys.com, and that, that's where I began my football writing career. I met up with Doug Drennan then, and Doug Drennan then, and now with you know the, the founder of profootballreference.com. Mm-hmm. Started working with Pro Football Reference, and Doug, you know, he uh, unlike me, I don't have any formal math training. Doug's a, a math professor, and you know we we've worked together for years, learned a lot from him, and, and really just 
the more you do, the, the better you get at it, the more, you know, you can remember, hey, 10 years ago, I remember something like this. And so, uh, you know, the, I've been writing for such a long time now that I'm able to at least piece together different things throughout the NFL, which has changed a lot, in the, you know, 18 years I've been doing this. So mm-hmm. it, it's an interesting time now. And then I just sort of became more into the NFL history and NFL statistics side of it, a little bit less on the fantasy side. And, you know, I started my website, Football Perspective, about seven years ago and been, been writing every day since. So I remember a couple of years ago you had the policy of I'm going to write something every day, or if not me, I'm going to contract out someone to come in here and write something. But we're going to produce content every day. Have you stayed with that philosophy? I have, which is, you know, for better or worse, I think sometimes it, it is not not always the best thing. But I do write every day. I think it, it just mentally, it's good for me. One, you know, one reason is I don't have to think, hey, am I going to write today or not? I just get up and do it. Um, you know, it does limit, I think, to some extent, the amount of time I could do on a larger, more, you know, in-depth article. Sure. And that, that's really for the off-season. I can do that. I try to do that. But I do think it's helpful to write every day, and so I've, I've been able to keep that up so far. So I want to just stay on you for a second, if that's okay, because I really do think you're an example of some of the best analysis and writing that's available out there. And the path you're describing is is um, a little atypical, but also it's something that is available to people. So I want to try to unpack the recipe. I didn't mean to do this, by the way, but um, I want to try to unpack the recipe a little bit because I think it is maybe generalizable. So you've been doing this for a long time, A. You... What I'm most impressed with is you don't have the math background, you don't have the stats background, but you're very astute statistically at this point. So where does that come from? And I'm going to guess I'm going to guess a few things. One, you've got it. You've been working with Drennan. You've been working with folks who do have the statistic background, and so you do pick that up over time. Two, you're putting stuff out in on the web and in into a very active community, so you're getting lots of feedback. And by the way, you're probably also reading lots of people doing these kinds of things. So that kind of interaction and feedback, I'm going to guess, is vital as well. Do those sound right to you? And what else would you attribute it to? That, that's exactly right. I mean, put one of the reasons I, I write every day is putting something out there is the only way you're really going to grow as a writer. I mean, you could do something every day. And if I did it in a journal, I don't think I'd be where at least I think I am today because I, I wouldn't have been told, hey, Chase, you're doing something wrong a hundred times. And so getting that, you know, you've got to have a little bit of a thick skin in this world. Getting that feedback and criticism, people say, you know what, maybe this person was, was a little bit mean to me, but they're kind of right. And so you're able to, <laughs> right. to learn and grow as a writer. And look, I mean, I, I do not have any formal math training. I think I've, you know, I, I can pick things up somewhat quickly. I was always good, you know, with math. But it's really, today, it's so easy to, to have anything you want at your fingertips. And, and you can just research it and, you know, you, you learn it and you teach yourself. And so you have to be a little bit self-motivated to teach yourself some of those things, but it's really, you you do not need, you know, you don't need to go to uh, a formal program to learn. You you can research, you can study, you you read good people. I mean, reading has always been the sort of shortcut to being good at anything. Read somebody who knows what they're doing. (laughs) Right, right. And you sort of copy what they're doing and incorporate into your own data. Talking to Chase Stewart. Chase is the owner of Football Perspective. He's been writing about football since 2001. Great, highly recommended Twitter follow at FBG Chase. So, Chase, this is Eric Bradlow. Related to that, I wanted to ask you, how do you think about it? You even mentioned just about criticism. So I can imagine two approaches, and I'd like to know which one you take. One is you write stuff, you put it out there, people comment one way or the other. Another might be 
you have a set of people you send stuff to prior to releasing it because you just want a sanity check on what it is you're doing. How do you kind of balance the two of those things? How do you think about it? Well, I think the, your second is a good one. I'm a little short on time usually, so I don't do that. So I just throw it out into the world. And you know, my, my cheat is I'll let everybody on Twitter be my test audience. Unfortunately, <laughs> right. they're pretty happy to yell at me and tell me when I'm wrong. So, right. you know, it, it's always good. You know, again, it, it depends how much time you've got, how, how, what your real goal is, what you're trying to, to figure out. I'm okay being wrong. I'm okay with someone telling me I'm doing something incorrectly. But it, it, and there are certainly times I go to some trusted advisor and say, "Hey, what do you think of this?" You know, especially if it's going to be a little more controversial, I think you have to tread a little more carefully. But people are, are pretty willing to help you out, and if you put something out there and and talk to people and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you guys think?" Or, "Hey, what what, what do you think this is? You know, is this something worth pursuing?" You usually get some pretty pretty quick results and pretty positive feedback. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, listen, one of the things you've recently put out there that is very interesting is this notion of passing identity. And you did it first for offense, and you came back and did it for defense. But can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what you think you've yeah. learned by doing it? Absolutely. So one of the things that I did a long time ago is I created a, a statistic called Game Scripts. And it, it's it's actually very simple to understand and calculate, which is that there's 60 minutes in a game. 60 seconds every minute, so there's 3,600 seconds in a game. You take the score at the end of every second, and now you get the average score in a game. So I I call that number, the average score over every second of the game, the game script. Mm -hmm. And this will tell you, you know, what what is the game looking like? Because the final score, obviously, is not always going to be reflective of the game script. It can have a big lead, and then, you know, they end up losing the game. But the game script will tell you what's the, the trend of the game, and that's important for figuring out a team's pass ratio because there's a strong correlation between a game script number and pass ratio. And what you see is teams that, and this is all you know, very simple stuff that people would expect. When teams have a lead, they run. When teams are trailing, they lose. The, the value in creating a game script, though, is you can quantify what we already know. So th- this is not a stat that I'm supposed to shock you with. It's, hey, hey, I want to be able to put a number on something we know because once you've got a number – you can actually do some cool stuff with it. Mm-hmm. So the game script tells you, hey, are teams playing with a lead or are teams trailing on mm-hmm. average? Mm-hmm. Once you've got that, they say, hey, let's look at the team's pass ratio. How often do they pass? How often do they run? And that, you then compare those two numbers. You can say, hey, is this a team that likes to pass or is this a team that likes to run? So like the Patriots, for example, this year, they are below average in percentage of passing plays. They pass on you know, about 58% of their plays, which is less than average. But the Patriots are always winning. And so if you, you can't really look at the Patriots and say hey, they're a run-heavy team because so they run more often than, than the average team. No, once you adjust for their game script, they're actually the most pass-happy team in the league because even when wow. they're up by 14, they're still passing a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's kind of you know the pass identity is let's look at how often they pass in relation to their game script. I think that you know one of the, the more interesting things this year might be on the, the run-heavy team sides. Mm-hmm. And the, the most run-heavy team – Right now, and this I think would shock people two months ago to hear, is the Eagles. And you would think, you know, they they spent a lot of money on, on their receivers. Obviously, Carson Wentz is is the you know guy they've invested in, and yet they're running more than any team in the league. And and you know, I don't think it's necessarily been that successful either. But the Eagles have had obviously some issues this year. You're you know you're you're well aware of that. And I think 
I would probably suggest if I was Nino saying, hey, we should be passing more often now. On the other hand, Carson Wentz is not having the best year either, so that that's maybe playing into it. Another team that, that's sort of in that bottom is Seattle, and that drives Seahawks fans up a wall because they've got the best quarterback in the NFL, or one of the best three quarterbacks in the NFL, and they are the third most run-heavy team in the NFL after you adjust for game script. So that, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, Chase, it, it raises some interesting questions, but now you've, you've created this metric, and then you can start doing more things downstream with it. So, for example, when you talk about the Pats, that feels like that's not a coaching philosophy thing. That's an adaptation to their their offensive personnel, probably. But you talk about the Seahawks, that's much more a philosophical-driven thing. And what you'd probably like to see in a coaching staff, I'm guessing, is more the 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 passing identity comes from the personnel as opposed to the passing identity is going to be what it's going to be regardless of personnel. And with your stat, if you looked at it over over years and related it to coaches, I suspect you could see some coaches are more adaptive. They're flexible depending on personnel. Other coaches have a philosophy. Their identity is much more consistent across years regardless of personnel. Absolutely. And, and my view would be the better coaches are the ones who are good at adapting to the changing personnel. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, you know, the Vikings are another example. and They, they do come out as very run-heavy in this analysis. And, you know, Minnesota, they, they you know, without adjusting for game trip, they're the second most run-heavy team in the NFL. But they, they, they've had a good season. They tend to play with the lead. They've got the third-highest game trip this year. But even after you adjust for that, they're still super run-heavy. And it's the sort of thing that doesn't make a ton of sense. They've got a head coach who is just 100% believes that running and old school football is the way to win, and yet they go out and they pay Kirk Cousins $28 million a year. They've got two you know, wide receivers that they're paying significant dollars to. If, if your philosophy is let's be a run-heavy team, why are you investing so much in the passing game? So that, that kind of disconnect is, I think, always worth you know, looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chase and Eric Bradlow again. I like Cade's thought about once you have this metric, it seems like you could relate it to lots of things. Could you tell us what other things you've thought about relating it to? Maybe it's not just uh, pass versus run, but it's, you know, I don't know, uh, against the probability of, you know, looking at it in relation to the probability of winning, looking at it to our teams making the right decisions given how far they are up in the game. Like, are they making plays that actually are maximizing their chances of winning? How have you thought about using this metric more broadly? Because I love the metric. Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting question because the the sort of, you know, 800-pound grill in the room is we all know at the fundamental level passing is better than running. It's more efficient. It's going to be better on average. So it's always a little tricky if you see a team that tends to pass a lot. Well, they may not be good at it, but it's still the right thing to do. Um, and it, it's, it's always, when you're looking at any sort of football data, you've got to keep in mind that, on average, the, the passing numbers are going to be better than the rushing numbers. And so teams that are run-heavy are going to be really skeptical about it. And, you know, that's why it's surprising when you see Philadelphia, which you think of as a pretty analytic, savvy team, to be run-heavy. The other way I've been looking at it recently is let's also look at it with defense because when, when you talk about pass offense or, or if you, on offense if you're going to pass and run, that's entirely up to the team with the football. That, that's their decision. So I think the pass identity statistic makes a lot of sense. When you think about it on defense, your initial thought might be, well, why are we talking about the pass identity of a defense? They don't control whether the opponent runs or passes. But the the reality is they kind of do. Oh, sure. Whether they're, they're forming, you know, what looks they show before the snap how their personnel is deployed, who their top players are, that kind of does incentivize an offense to run or pass. 
for sure. In fact, the fact that you've run this for both sides makes me want to ask the question, what do you see the relative contribution being? How much does come from the offensive side versus how much is taking whatever the defense gives them? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly more on the offense, um, but it's it's maybe, and I don't have a, a direct number for you. My guess is it would be somewhere between 65, 35, mm-hmm. offense, defense. But, you know, I've been running these numbers for years. One of the things that stood out to me a while ago when I was looking at the 2013 Seahawks is they obviously were a great team and they were typically playing with a lead and teams still didn't pass all that often against Seattle despite trailing and that was weird and I think what we really saw was they were so good at pass defense that teams really tended to run even when they shouldn't because they knew it was so risky passing against them. You're seeing a little bit of that so far this year with the San Francisco 49ers, which is pretty interesting because mm-hmm. you know, similar situation with San Francisco, often playing with a lead. They're, you know, obviously a great defense. They, they seem to have a great pass defense and a tremendous defensive line. And so maybe teams are just a little conservative. Do I want to, you know, drop back 40 times against them? <laughs> right. Probably not, even though I may need to to win. That's impressive, Chase. What? How do you think of trying to isolate quarterback performance from all the other factors that we know? Attribute, contribute to quarterback performance? This seems like one of the biggest questions. It's, it's a big question. It comes up in lots of places. I mean, just trying to forecast how a team's going to do, and then if you change quarterbacks, or if we decide, is this quarterback evolving the way he's supposed to, or do we want to replace him? Do we want to trade for somebody? You have to somehow parse his performance from the offensive line, the wide receivers, the running backs, the coaches, the scheme. It's a lot. Do you Have you thought much about this, and do you have any insight into what you consider to be the best, they're all flawed, they're all confounded, but the best of the quarterback stats at getting at that. So I guess we're done with the easy questions today. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, that that is extremely complicated. It's a very difficult question to answer. There is no right answer. I think every, right. everybody is still struggling with it. And, and it's one of those things where the eye test and sort of, you know, non-statistical-based analyses struggle just as much as statistical-based ones. I mean, we, we've been watching Jameis Winston forever, and I feel like nobody still really knows how he's <laughs> going to be in three or four years, unless he's just going to be the exact same, which, which maybe is still confusing. <laughs> uh, you know, when I look at quarterbacks, I do think that there's a tendency to give them, you know, everything, assign all credit and all blame right. to them, and that, that's certainly, I think, too far in, in one direction. There are 11 players on offense. The quarterback is just one of them. Even if they're three times as valuable as the average player, that, that's still not an enormous percentage of the offense. Right. Obviously, the coaching staff play, plays a big part of it, too. I think when, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo is a, a good quarterback. You know, Maybe we haven't really seen him that much outside of some pretty impressive systems, but I think what San Francisco has done has made his life very easy, mm-hmm. and that's a credit to the, the coaching staff, and I think that's, you know, that, that's not a knock on Garoppolo, but Kyle Shanahan's done a good job, and you've seen him do well with other quarterbacks. Last year you saw Nick Mullins, who was you know as lowly regarded a quarterback prospect as to be, came in and put up great numbers. Mm-hmm. So it, it is always important to think of how is a quarterback doing in this particular system with, with these sets of players. I mean, I watch the Jets every week for better or worse, usually for worse, and Mm. The Jets have surrounded their quarterbacks in pretty bad situations. The offensive line's playing poorly. They don't have great receivers. Certainly the coaching staff leaves a lot to be desired. So it, it makes it a lot harder 
to to grade a quarterback like Sam Darnold in that regard. I think right. I think one thing you can think about it is, you know, rather than just putting a rating on a quarterback, put it on a, a spectrum. Sort of how wide or how narrow is your confidence about this quarterback? And so somebody like Sam Darnold, and same thing with Jimmy Garoppolo, probably harder to get a, a really concise grade. If you were to you know put a curve on them, it'd be mm. a pretty wide curve because you, you don't know how much is them and how much is their you know, supporting cast. On the other hand, when, when you see somebody like Russell Wilson, who's played well for a long time, uh, you could say, he's really good. You can be pretty confident that mm-hmm. thing, he's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of s- specific statistics, there are lots of them out there, no question about that. I think you have to look at all of them. You, Chase, you really I'm going to push you. I'm going to push you for yeah. two reasons. We've got about 20 seconds. But also, if you had to pick one, if you're going to build a model and you only had one stat available, to best capture quarterback performance, what are you going to use? I'd probably use the expected points at a model, the EPA model. Is wow. Pretty good. So they're just, you're, you're going to punt on trying to parse quarterback. You're just going to get the offense's number. I understand completely. It's a good number, but wow. That just shows how hard it is, really. That's my inference from your answer. Yeah. That's great. Listen, man, Chase, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's always a pleasure to read your work. Hope you'll come back again soon, and we wish you the best with all that you're working on. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. That was Chase Stewart, owner of Football Perspective. He's been writing about football since 2001. He is a great Twitter follow, one of the best football analytics follow out there. You can get him on Twitter, at FBGChase, at FBGChase, talking to Chase from New York City this morning. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and colleague, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator, Eric Bradlow. We are now down to two in the studio. Shane is out and about this week. He'll be back doing Shane Jensen things. Audie Weiner was here for the first 45 minutes. He had to slip up into the classroom and do teacher things. You guys can jump in here. Give us a shout. Give us a question. one 844 That's one 844 Give us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We can still handle email. It feels kind of 90s at this point, but we can do it. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle. Great way to reach out to us or to follow the world of sports analytics. We were just off the phone with Chase Stewart. Eric had one observation. He didn't have time to get in there, but I asked this question of Chase. What stat would you use if you wanted to best parse NFL quarterback performance from all the other factors that affect NFL quarterback performance, his line, his receivers, his, his running back, his coaches, his scheme, what stat would you use? Really hard thing to do. 
In fact, Chase ends up saying, you know, just just go with expected points added, which is an offensive stat. It's not even a quarterback stat, but I think that's a very reasonable answer. Eric's like, well, you know, give us a few years, right? Give us a few years. Technology is going to solve this problem. Is that right, Eric? Yeah, well, I mean, you can make an argument. Put, like, take a given quarterback, put a different quarterback in the same exact position on the field and the same amount of time, and could you compute the expected number of yards gained, let's say, on the play compared to what actually happened on the play for a given quarterback? So you could absolutely do that. With now, the, of course, you'd have experiment. to win. With, you, if you could experiment, If you could. You could You'd have to have the counterfactual. The other counterfactual is, here's the problem. Maybe that given quarterback would never be in that position. So that's the challenge. Totally. It, no, no. That's the, that, to me, that's <laughs> even the harder part than saying, what would Tom Brady do if he were in the same physical position as Sam Darnold? Well, Tom Brady wouldn't be in that well, position. Well, I think this is a very important point because what technology is going to allow us to do is to talk much more specifically about the situation, the space that he had, the time that he had, the, the, the windows that they threw him into, all of those kinds of things. Technology is facilitating that conversation. But you're saying this other issue, which is, Terrifically important. In fact, the better we are at describing a situation, the more important it is to say, how did that situation come to be? So what you we, need, we, need to, we need to give this guy credit or blame, not just for right. what he does in a situation, but did he foster that situation? Well, you need two mathematical models. You need one model that, if you're going to do it from a prediction standpoint, what's the probability someone would be in a situation? And that varies by quarterback. And then what's your distribution of performance given that situation. Mm-hmm. This latter of the two is actually the easier of the two to right. do using right. technology. Right. The first one is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And that's but but if you had both, then you can be in a counterfactual world. I'm afraid most people are going to do number two and leave out number one. Right. No, that's exactly where we're going. And that's a, we have to do these things, you know, by layers. We have to get better a little before we can get better a lot. But I think the short of your answer is yeah, technology is going to be helpful. And it's probably the right direction, but we're some way yet because it raises some questions. It's to answer some questions, but it raises some questions. So we're some yet way yet. Matter of fact, I think a lot of people will find, this is my own belief, maybe I'm wrong, is that every quarterback that's in the NFL can throw the ball. What some quarterbacks do better is the one that's harder to do, which is to put their team in a better situation on a given play. So mm-hmm. I think while we can solve number two better, I think the greater discrepancy among quarterbacks is actually in number one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Chase mentioned, you know, obviously a painful point for me, Jameis Winston. You give Jameis Winston an open receiver, and Jameis Winston's got a strong arm, not particularly accurate, but he can get the ball to that receiver. But Jameis Winston puts himself in such bad situations right. so many times during the game that other quarterbacks just don't do. Yeah, and so, you know, you, he puts himself in 10 bad situations in a game. Aaron Rodgers might do it twice. Right, right. And that's, right. And, and that's I don't know how to, I don't know yet how to model that. Well, there's another, this isn't quite that sophisticated, but there's an interesting quarterback stat that I just saw from Kevin Cole. So Kevin now works for PFF. He was his own, his own shop for a while. He's, he's working as a data scientist for PFF now. He he tweeted a little analysis last night which showed how basically how much risk quarterbacks take as a function of how behind they are. And so you would want a quarterback to ratchet up the risk the more behind his team is. And so you want them to be you want them to be able to play either way, conservatively or riskier. So one way to measure this is air yards and what he mapped, he just con- contrasted Brady with Aaron Rodgers, which is an interesting contrast because Brady, we sometimes say, ah, he benefits from being with Belichick. Ro- what if Rodgers had been in Brady's system? Even Tom Brady has said that. But what he showed in this analysis is that 
Rodgers is pretty similar in terms of air yards, regardless of where his team is and whether they're up or down, where Brady is much more likely to, to be throwing the ball downfield when they're down. And, and, and if you map someone who we know is good, like Manning on there, he looks like Brady. And so it's this thing, again, where you've got some flexibility. It's not the same style all the time. It's adapting to the circumstances. Well, to me, that was what Chase Stewart talked about. In fact, take his metric, which is, I forget what he called it, the game situation or, you know, et cetera. Game that, script was game his. Game script. That's exactly what it is. Depending on where you are in the game script, let's look at the distribution of different quarterbacks. Like, as you said, when you're behind... That's exactly Chase's metric would be a great way to tie it in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, we're going into our second guest segment. In this half hour, we have Todd Golden from the University of San Francisco. He's the head coach out there for the basketball team. Those guys play in the West Coast Conference. You might know that conference because of Gonzaga, one of the winningest teams in in college basketball for the last 10 years or so. These guys have to face them every year. Todd's been on our show before, and we are delighted to have him back. Coach Golden, welcome back. Hey, good morning, guys. How are you? Good morning. We are very well. We're probably not as well as you. You started your season with the bang last night, did you not? <laughs> we uh, we did. We we had a you know we played Sonoma State, a good D two team out this way, and uh, obviously got off to a really good start, scoring one hundred one points last night. You doubled them up. You doubled them up. Was that a goal? One hundred one to fifty. That doesn't happen every day. <laughs> it, it definitely was not uh, a goal that we put out at the beginning of the game, but we were uh, we have a pretty deep team, and we were able to play a lot of guys. And, uh, our guys have really enjoyed playing faster offensively this year, and obviously they took advantage of that last night. Well, tell us a little bit about that. We want to know what you're doing with your program. We we were super excited to talk about you last year to find out how aggressively you are pursuing a certain brand of basketball, and more importantly, a, a process, a way a way of coaching the team and developing the team, choosing who plays, all of these elements built around a philosophy. Can you can you tell us what you think the key elements are of that philosophy now, and how that has advanced? Over now, you're in the second year in the program. I imagine it's easier to to do what you consider to be foundational pieces, and now you can push on to advanced pieces. Yeah, uh, well, just to clarify, are you talking more in terms of building the program or like in game in terms of how we play? Let's take let's take both. Let's take both because I know I know sure. you're working on both. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'd say the biggest thing we've done differently this year as opposed to the past three uh, when Kyle Smith was head coach here was kind of in game how we are, you know, just. Uh, just kind of our playing style, so to speak. There's five areas um, that, that we're really just emphasizing uh, as we go into every game, and that's winning the transition battle, trying to score more points than the other team in the first 10 seconds of the shot clock. And then one area that, that's that been really unique that I think we're doing a really good job with is just our shot selection this year. Um, for example, last night against Sonoma State, we took, uh, I think, 73 shots over the course of the night, only one of those shots came outside the paint and inside the three-point line. So that right. was something that was really, really good. <laughs> okay. And something that, you know, we were that we just really been emphasizing since the beginning of practice, and we've done a couple things to really stress that um, that we can kind of talk about a little more later. But then just the, the ones that are pretty basic but probably don't get uh, talked about enough, but just winning the rebounding battle, turnover battle, and then, uh, get into the line more than the other team. Those five things are, are really what we're stressing. And, uh, you know, we've had two closed door scrimmages that we won, and then we won last night. And so I think our guys are, are really starting to understand it and uh, take pride in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's unpack a couple of those. The shot selection is something, you know, we've been talking about for a long time the Mori Ball revolution. In fact, we, we know our sure. Princeton, our Princeton coach around here has something like a 95% threshold for what he's looking for. He only wants 5% of the shots to not be either 
in the paint or behind the three-point line. You guys just crushed that number. One out of 73 is even smaller. But we hear less about transition. We hear less about the first. I like this. It's not that you want to shoot quick. It's that you want to outscore them in the first 10 seconds of the shot clock, meaning I think that means you want to play aggressive defense as well. And maybe that fits really well with the transition philosophy. It, it, it's kind of a it's – a, it's actually tough, right, because you want to play super fast offensively. Um, it's, there's plenty of data that shows that when you attack in the first 10 seconds of the clock, you're going to shoot a higher percentage from the field. And a lot of that is because you're going against a defense that's not set. It, mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. Um, but on the flip side, you obviously you don't want to let your opponent shoot in the first 10 seconds of the clock because then they're going to they're have that same advantage. So we really try to stress playing fast offensively. But then on the defensive end, we're, we're trying to make them use clock. We're trying to keep them out of the paint, and we want them to operate in the last, you know, 10 to 15 seconds of the shot clock. So mm-hmm. it's uh, so, and sometimes, you know, you can't, uh, you can't go that fast-paced offense and then continue to slow them down. But that's really what we're trying to emphasize and work on uh, and try to create that divide where we are getting those transition opportunities and they are not. You know, it's interesting. In that part of the world, I happened to go to the Sacramento game, Sacramento Kings game, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to the guys beforehand. They said, I asked them what to look for. They said, look for fast play, lots of transition, lots of early shot clock shots. They've got very much the same philosophy, and I think it, it's just it's the continued outgrowth of the of the analytics that people, as they better understand where the advantages are. Well, yeah, I think one one thing that, that's really kind of uh, – well, first of all, our guys love it, right? Like our guys really enjoy – um, being able to get out and transition and play fast. Todd, did they uh, not get worn down? I mean, they must have the conditioning must be a bigger part of their of, of what you're well, emphasizing, right? A little bit, but I, I also think a big strength of our team is our depth. I see. Uh, okay, you know, we have we have uh, eleven guys really that could could come in and and, and really affect the game in a positive way. Uh, so we are getting up and down a little more that way. They love playing fast. And what I was going to say, you know. The old adage is, you know, sometimes coaches would say, hey, turn down a good shot and let's get a better one. You know, let's get a better one. But in reality, you're not going to get a better shot a lot of the time. So take that first good shot because when you try to, when you maybe pass up uh, or turn down a good shot, now you're letting turnovers come back into the equation. You're letting, you know, offensive rotation areas where guys are in the wrong place at the wrong time come into play. So we really are, even if it's just a good shot, we're, we're trying to take that early in the clock. Wow. So, Coach Golden, this is Eric Bradlow. I have a question. Um, more about the length of the season, which is you took 72, I guess, or 73 shots last night in the paint and threes. Um, obviously, the other coaches know. Matter of fact, you're on this show. You've just announced what your strategy is. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, not that you didn't already. They can see the game film. Guys back on defense are going to run out to the three-point line in the paint. Matter of fact, they will leave an 18-footer wide open for you guys, knowing you're not going to take it. Are you not worried that your shooting percentage will go down as the season goes on because the other teams play not better defense but different defense? Are you not worried that you just said you want to score in the first 10 seconds of the shot clock? Great. They'll make sure they do something in the first 10 seconds. Are you not worried that you should, you know, from an economics point of view, should you be playing a mixed strategy where sometimes you use the Coach Golden rules and sometimes you don't and you have to mix it up a bit? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. I, I just think it's hard. It's one thing to, to kind of understand um, what we're looking to do, and then it's another thing to try to take it away. And, again, I, you know, I'm totally comfortable with my guys playing aggressive. You know, one area that, uh, it really shows up, and, and it has so far as, as we've competed this year. Is we, you get to the line more as well. And, and as you guys know, that's the most efficient way to score. If you get to the line, it's about 1.4 points per possession as opposed to right around 1.0, whether it's shooting a three or, or shooting a two. So um, 
you know, I, I, if teams are trying to take us out of it and they're focusing on that, that's great. And uh, we'll, we'll let the chips fall and see where they land. Mm-hmm. So it will be interesting to see how they adapt since this is such an extreme philosophy. And it's tough. It's I mean, it's it's not clear what how advantageous it would be to to change that. Do you expect to, uh, Coach Golden for this philosophy to work differentially well against um, you know when you're playing Sonoma State versus you know let's say Gonzaga's on your schedule? So how how do you like in other words, what are the interaction effects if you'd like from a statistical point of view between your strategy and the quality of the opponent? Yeah, I think that's it's a it's a really good point. And but again, it's the same. I think Gonzaga. One thing that they and what we're doing right now, Gonzaga has been great at it for the past ten years. That's the bottom. You know, they have a great delta between what they do in transition, what the opponents do. Um, so obviously, you know, we're we're playing with the same kind of goals a little bit. Sure, their talent's really good. But again, I, I just I just always get back to this is what's going to give us the best chance to win. I think with this group that we have, the type of personnel that we have, uh, and the way our team's shaped, getting up and down offensively, and then again like playing a style defensively where you know we're containing in the backcourt. Once we get in the in the front court, really just working on te- keeping teams out of the paint and staying out of rotations defensively. And really, just trying to force tough twos that are contested are, are going to give us the best chance to win. Todd, get, give us one one subtlety in this philosophy that would help us as observers of basketball. As a casual observer, when you watch teams play this style, it's sometimes a little frustrating to see them come down the court and just like jack it up. And how do you, as sure. a coach, <laughs> how do you as a coach help them understand what's a? I mean, maybe that's great. If it in what situations is that okay? In what situations is it not okay? And how do you? How do you evaluate them on those, and how do you try to train them? What is a good shot and what's not a good shot? And how do we as fans know when you've got a guy who's just being kind of too aggressive versus playing the philosophy the coach wants him to play? So one one thing that we do throughout the course of the preseason, and uh, again, this is a change that we did this year, and, and I think it's really shown up, is is when and we talked about this a little bit last time I was on, we do our preseason hustle stats where we try to grade our guys from their five-on-five in practice. Uh, and one thing that we added this year was when we were breaking down the shooting and scoring part of, of practice, we're giving guys value based upon the shots that they're taking and, and less upon, um, obviously, not less upon what they're making. But, for example, if our guys are getting rim layups, we give them, you know, that's a, and they make it, that's a four-point shot. Where if they miss it, it's only minus one. Okay. 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 And all the way to taking, if you take a mid-range, which we deem outside of the paint, okay, anything yep. outside of the paint, inside of three, we call it a mid-range. And you make it, you only get one point. You miss it, you, you lose three points. Okay. Right? So, and and we all know that the best shooters in the world um, are only, you know, they're making those shots somewhere between 40 and 46% of the time. So, you know, our guys figure out pretty quick, like, shoot, you know, <laughs> I'm falling down the rankings here in practice really quick because I need to clean up my shot selection. Yep. You know, we give our catch and shoot threes. Um, if we make them, they're four. If you miss them, they're minus one. And we let all of our guys shoot in, in practice, especially. And we'll tone it down for the games a little bit. But even our bigs, if they get a wide-open catch-and-shoot shot from the top of the key, we mm-hmm. want them taking it. Mm-hmm. And it really just it really helps with our flow. Another area that really helps, which which might not, you know, it might from the outside looking in, might not seem like it makes sense, but it helps with our offensive rebounding. And the reason why is because when you take a shot that your other teammates know you're going to take, you have a much better chance of getting in good offensive rebounding mm. position mm. as opposed to a shot that, uh, you know, might come as a surprise to the four other guys on the floor. Mm-hmm. So little subtleties like that, just giving different point values for different types of shots that we emphasize. And it always go, it goes back to the Mori rules, right? It's layups, threes, get to the rim uh, and get to the foul line, excuse me. 
but what we're a little different. We don't we we don't play an isolation style. That that's where I think um, I think we're a little more enjoyable to watch that way. We we still play a four around one motion offense. We're moving the ball a lot, mm-hmm. uh, throwing it. Do we have a good back to the basket center who can really score? Throw it into him, uh, running different actions off that. So, you know, where the Rockets, you know, they, they look, they get a little stagnant sometimes. Harden, Westbrook, these guys are always playing off that high pick and roll, mm-hmm. really trying to attack. They're putting two guys in the corner, and it's pretty simple. Whereas we're, we are playing more of a, a motion style that I, I would think is a little more enjoyable to watch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're talking to Coach Todd Golden. He's the head coach of the University of San Francisco men's basketball team, and he's in his second year there as a head coach after being an assistant for a couple. He also taught, coached under Bruce Pearl at Auburn and began coaching at Columbia. Played basketball, played college basketball at St. Mary's and then overseas in Israel. Todd's been on the show before. We're hearing a little bit about your offensive strategy, in-game strategy, Todd. We want to hear about the program building stuff as well. You mentioned practice and this point scheme you have for rewarding rewarding what shot selection, basically. But you said this sure. thing last time we talked to you about how how you how you determine playing time and it was it was driven off of what you guys do at practice can you talk about that system a little bit yeah and and it's uh just just to be clear it's really what we do is we have our we call it the hustle stats and again it's really where our coaching staff will grade it, it's you know I, i've listened to a couple podcasts you guys have had where you've had guys from uh pro football focus on it, it's a similar concept where we're grading individual players performance on each possession Wow. Um, okay. and we have different different categories uh shooting ball handling rebounding and defense and within those categories we have different stats that we keep and some of them are your typical box score stats you know your blocks steals assists turnovers but we do add uh some different statistics that we're really just trying to implement a style of play right like we talked about our shooting statistics another thing that we do that i think is very valuable is you know, an assist is a—it's an interesting stat because it's relying upon the guy that you're passing to making a shot. Right. Where what we want to do is we want to give guys—we uh, want to give them credit for making the right play. So we give the same point total for assists that we do for a stat that we call virtual assists, which is if, okay. if I'm penetrating into the paint and I throw out to a wide open three-point shooter and he misses it you still get credit for that assist. We call it a mm-hmm. virtual assist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same point value as an actual assist. Mm-hmm. And then we also give guys the same value for an assist to foul. So if I penetrate and I drop it off to a big, he goes up, he gets fouled. He does, you know, you don't get an assist for that in the box score, but we give you credit for that right. in practice because these are all positive plays that are resulting in good results for our team. Right. So we go through and there's there's negative stats as well. Like one thing that we did this year is we made turnovers incredibly punitive uh, because it's just really the worst play in basketball. Turnovers usually lead to transition offensive opportunities for your opponents. So it goes back to what we were talking earlier. We will take a good shot over a turnover every time. Mm-hmm. And it might be a quick shot. might be something that looks a little uh, out of the realm of the offense. But, again, turning the ball over. So, you know, it's just such a bad thing to do. Uh, so we made that really punitive. Uh, you know, like blow buys on defense, we we obviously uh, ding you pretty good. If you don't contest a jump shot, uh, we ding you pretty good. Just different things like that. So we'll grade these guys, and then we will come up with a hustle stat number. We will divide that by the amount of possessions that they played in practice to make it uh, more equal across all you know 15 players in our program. Right. And then what we do is what we we start the first five guys. Um, at each position in our first couple of scrimmages of the year. So 
that's kind of what the the carrot at the end of the the practices is, is that you get to start those first couple of scrimmages and then I reserve the right to to make adjustments as we move forward. <laughs> <laughs> Put your finger on the scale for the actual games. One one mm-hmm. detail there that I'm curious about, given how dependent play is on your, who you're playing with, how systematically do you rotate guys in and make sure they're playing with different line mates, if you will, just to kind of normalize those stats as well? It, it's a it's a great question, and I think that's one thing that I think our staff did a really good job on this year. You know, generally. In the past, we've tried to kind of come up with our top seven or eight guys within the first couple weeks of practice and then build them up throughout the first, or I guess the next two to three weeks before we play our first game. Well, what we did this year uh, at the start of practice for the first month is we changed the teams every day in practice. Oh, that's fantastic. So good. So what we wanted, obviously, to give different guys opportunities to play together, to take a look at different lineup combinations, uh, as we got into the season. And obviously, when you're playing with good players, it's better to do well. So we wanted to mix it up. So, you know, some starters were playing with some guys, some freshmen, you know, so they oh, were yeah. playing with some less experienced guys to see, you know, if they were pulling them up or if the freshmen were dragging them down. Well, Todd, this is, did, yep, yeah, this is, okay. I really want to know, like, because the claim would be we don't do enough of this. And it's not just in basketball, not just in sports, it's in non-sports organizations. We we think we know who's best and we start giving them the best assignments and they get the resources and it turns out they start doing better. But it all kind of flowed from a noisy perception to begin with. So my main question for you, other than like, fantastic you're doing this thing that seems like it's really helpful how insightful was it for you like did you find out that maybe one of these players that you would have put in the top seven didn't make the top seven and did you have a player who you might not have thought that highly of emerge unexpectedly yeah uh, we had a little bit of both um i think what it did uh that was the best for us as a staff is it, it allowed us to realize you know, who really our top four guys were. We, you know, no matter who these guys were playing with or what combination they were, you know, they were out there with, they were always, they were winning. You know, they they were having the, the most positive point differential. So it allowed us to really build around those guys as we constructed our team, uh, you know, through the course of the preseason. And then we were able to say, all right, we're, we can throw this guy out there if he's playing with, you know, this group of four and he's going to be just fine. He might be our 10th or 11th best guy, but we know he's going to be able to, to adapt and play really well because he's out there with other guys that are capable whereas you know some other guys maybe our sixth man he only needs you know two starters out there with him he can carry the seventh and eighth guy as well because right. he's just as capable um and that's where again because we have a deep team i think we have 10 or 11 guys who are fully capable of, of contributing on any given night it's allowed us to to kind of juggle our rotation based upon okay. that Okay. So, Coach, let's take your um, strategy of scoring everybody on every play to the extreme. So let me ask two areas. Do you yeah. do it for recruiting, which means, and this is specifically, let's assume you can't get necessarily the same blue-chip talent as Duke, okay? Sure. One thing that, you can look a fair assumption. Yeah, it's a fair <laughs> assumption. But what you can look for is residuals, so people that do better than, let's say, the traditional stats other people use to evaluate people. So first, let me ask you about recruiting. The second yep. related is, do you do this when you scout opponents? So now you're like, let this person shoot as often as they want, because this person's going to be either taking low probability, bad shots. This person's not going to pass the ball appropriately. So both, can you talk about the recruiting side and the scouting the opponent side? Because if you're going to drink this analytics Kool-Aid, let's do it for everything. 
100%. And, you know, we really have tried to use it a lot uh, from a recruiting standpoint. And what where, how we use it is really just as a talent identifier. Uh, you know, in AAU, there's there's three premier uh, tours, I guess you would want to call them, are circuits. You know, you have the Nike circuit, Adidas circuit, Under Armour circuit. All three of those circuits, uh, they keep box score stats. So we're able to work with a, a third-party company named Open Look Analytics, and they pull the XML file and get all the data. So what we look for in recruiting is undervalued guys who have a high usage, which we think is probably the most important thing when, when identifying young talent. Uh, and by high usage, meaning guys that end possessions. Uh, that's something that's, that's really valuable. Obviously, what offensive efficiency they're able to pair with that high usage and then how many minutes they play on their given AU teams. And those three factors we've found, um, it really does. It helps identify undervalued talent. Guys that, you know, this is the same money ball approach, guys that might not pass the eye test, but they're very, very productive. Uh, also, in international competition, we have five guys from Europe on our team, uh, and we really comb through FIBA stats. So when they're playing with their national team in these different U18 or U20 events, uh, we'll go through and look and see which guys, you know, played at the highest PERs, which guys, you know, had the best offensive efficiency with high usage in those events. And then we'll we'll go out and try to recruit those players to USF based upon that. So trying to take as much of the human element out of it. Obviously, you pair some of the eye test with it, but uh, we're really kind of trying to piggyback off that to identify some of our young talent, for sure. Todd, what about their response to your philosophy? You've, you've talked about recruiting in terms of what you go look for. Are you seeing... Are you seeing any advantages in attracting people to you, given how how extreme you're taking this philosophy and how different this might be from some other places? You know, there, there's some obviously. Uh, you know, some kids some kids understand it. You know, some kids, whether it's based in their high school program or just from because they're followers of the game, they understand it and they appreciate it. You know, you know, parents really like it. <laughs> you know, they, a lot of parents understand and get it, and they they just appreciate. The, that it's a meritocracy and that they're going to be able to compete and that there's tangible information we can give them, tangible results that we can show them in terms of, you know, how they can get better or what they need to do better. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of those things where we talk about it in recruiting just because we want to make sure everything's transparent on the front end. They know what they're getting themselves into. And, I, you know, I don't know if there's been many guys that are jumping in because of it, but I think once they get here and they understand that it's going to make them a better player, uh, they they take pride and, and they they enjoy it. They like it. Todd, last question for you. We we could talk to you all morning, but we're going to need to turn you back to your real job. Uh, if what what would you like? What would be most helpful to you from the basketball analytics community? Are there problems that you you're facing, or challenges you have, or just contributions you'd like from from the analytics community? You know, I, I don't I don't I wouldn't say there's been challenges. I think for for me and our staff, you know, we're just trying to always find that that little edge. We're we're always looking at it and we're trying to do different things. And again, like we discussed earlier, we we thought changing those lineups was was a great way to get a better understanding of of which players were more valuable. That's one, you know. So just trying to do these little things here and there to to gain edges. But no, it's it's uh again, it's it's been enjoyable. My staff's done a really really great job. We have some really bright guys who who are able to crunch some numbers and and collect a lot of you know accurate data that that helps us identify certain things and. Uh, 
Uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep running with it because we think we're ahead of the game, and uh, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Well, we need some we need some uh, apparel, man. We need we need we need to get this is this gonna be an official basketball team of the Wharton Moneyball Show. I think we we got. I love it. We're we, all in, man. We'll, we'll send you some gear. Absolutely. <laughs> we are. Uh, we're gonna be following what you do, pulling for you. Really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Congrats on being out of the box in such good fashion, and good luck with the schedule coming up. I appreciate you guys. Thanks a lot. I'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take Sounds care. good. Coach Todd Golden, head coach of the University of San Francisco men's basketball team. He's an analytically, analytically oriented, analytics oriented coach doing a lot of interesting things. I love the stuff he's doing with, with practice in particular. I like the thing that you, the area you focused on, which is he's almost experimenting with different lineups. Like maybe there are interactions between players and you need to measure that. The only way to do it, only way to know is to run by the part of the goal standard is to run the, run the experiment, which he's doing. You got practice. Why not do it in practice? These guys are doing it. It's fantastic. All right. Todd Golden, university of San Francisco basketball team. Give you a, give you a team to pull for out there on the West coast, West coast conference. They've been same conference as Gonzaga. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Dion Simpkins bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour there. Dion Simpkins, associate producer on the soundboard. Going to be on the sound. Has been for a couple weeks. Going to be on with us for a couple more. Always a delight to have Dion in the studio. Dion giving us new intros. He surprised us today with these new intros. Whole new vibe. Five and a half years in, man. Who are you? What are we doing here? Always a pleasure, Deion Simpkins. We are just off the phone with University of San Francisco coach Todd Golden. Such a pleasure. How great was that? Well, I'm pulling for those guys so hard. They're they're my new college basketball team. Step aside, Shaka Smart. Got to win some games. I'm a, I'm a Don now. No, I'm excited by what he's doing. He's trying to learn stuff in practice. I love the fact that, you know, he was I, probably my favorite part. He said a lot of stuff I loved. I love the idea of a virtual assist. Like, just because the guy missed the shot, what did it, well, I didn't do anything and, wrong. And on fouls, when the guy gets to the line. And on fouls. He also talked about, you know, in some sense, counting some things as four. Mid-range jumper yeah. is one. Great way to train, right? Great way to train. And the rotation, the the experimenting with the lineups to to learn. Early in the season, you probably are too sure you know who's going to be good and who's not going to be good. Experimentation is the only way to suss it out. I also liked his psychology. To my, the question, to, the answer to my question, which he said, if we can make the other team adjust to what we're doing, then in some sense he's basically saying we've already won. Yeah, like let's see the – all right, so now they're going to change their whole defense to stop our threes and our right. layups? Great. Let him try to do it. So I I loved his answer to that in some sense. Then they're playing on our terms. Yep. That was the challenge that Belichick faced this past week with the Ravens. Anybody that plays the Ravens does because they play such a different offense. All right. On the professional side of the basketball world, we are one more week into still an early season. Any new observations, Eric? Well, I don't know if it's a new observation, but I'm going to change my tune here. So I guess maybe I didn't realize, well, it's early in the season. Maybe I didn't realize how injured LeBron James was at the end of last season. Because I've watched a lot of the Laker games that they've played so far this season. Yeah, 
He's great. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, he's still great. Like, last night's game, they were playing the Bulls, and they were down by, like, 20 points early in the fourth quarter, or, you know, late in the third quarter. I know the second team came in, turned that game around a bunch, but Anthony Davis had a bad game last night. He looked bad. And really? He, he just didn't look great. He wasn't that engaged in the game. I don't know if he was playing in front of his hometown team, or he had just kind of joked that, you know, wow, it would be fun to play for my hometown team, the Bulls. And so he did say that yesterday. Wow. Okay. But LeBron had his third straight triple-double, which is the—he's only done that two other times in his career. Okay. He put up 30 points, 10 rebounds, and 11 assists. And I hate to say it again, it looked— easy for LeBron yeah, to do it. Right, right. So, And he only did it, by the way, unlike James Harden or Russell Westbrook, he did it on 19 shots. So mm. again, he's efficient. Matter of fact, the advanced stats say his defense is better. He's playing a lot better defense. He claims now because he can actually move. He doesn't have a groin injury, so he can move. I wow. just thought he was making the right play. I just, I'm all in now on the Lakers. I'm just thinking, if LeBron can... Now, here's the challenge. Do they decide to do what the like, for example, the Clippers are doing right now. This part of the season, like tonight's game, I think the Clippers are playing, I'll make up the Rockets or something, some, or Golden State, I forget which of the two. Kawhi Leonard's not playing. Wow. So they're Already. doing load, it's, he's not injured. They're not doing sure. load management at game eight. Mm-hmm. LeBron played 35 minutes last night. I wouldn't consider that load management for an almost 35-year-old. Um, is there a point in the season where... The Lakers also decide right, to do sure. load management for LeBron, so, and I hope the answer is yes. So, by the way, the Clips are playing the Bucks. This is a oh, serious, okay. serious game. But I guess they're like, well, win or lose, we don't care so don't much care. as we want to. We want to manage the load on Kawhi. I mean, this is where sports science is, and we may not like the entertainment value of it, but for optimal performance, load management is terrifically important. So, I can, you have to. I think you have to applaud it mostly. Yeah, and I think, well, you know, we've talked about this. So the question becomes, suppose you decide to do load management with LeBron and say, look, I'm instead of playing him, look, which one's worse on his body? He plays three games at 33 minutes each but takes one off, or I play him all four games and I play him at 25 minutes each. It's still 100 minutes of court time, but one is 33-33, it's called 0-33, that is 25-25-25-25. I don't know the answer right. <laughs> as to which of the two well, uh, is actually better load management. Eric, a good question is, does anybody know the answer? Because you know this is a little bit like nutrition research where the, the, there's not that much that's terrifically well-established. And st- studies come out all the time that turn over previously you know, accepted wisdom. So I think we're still figuring these things out. And again, one of the only ways you figure them out is by running the experiments. And so maybe because people are doing more load management, we're going to learn faster. So I think your point about running experiments, we already talked about this earlier in the show, is crucial because here's an analysis you could do that doesn't require an experiment. Let's imagine you just wanted to predict, and let's just call it a a binary outcome, one or zero, did a player get injured in a game or not? Let's imagine, and we can measure that. Did the player get injured in a game or not? We could look at the past number of minutes in games. We could run some sort of, let's call it a hazard model and predict that here's the problem. The problem is the number of minutes they're playing is not random. The coach might know something and be playing them a different number of minutes to prevent injury. But it's not like you can't run analysis. There is one you could run. The question is, could you treat it the causal way that you would want to treat it? And I think the answer is no. Right. But obviously you try to get as much signal out of those data, even if you can't be sure of causality. And people do run those kinds of studies. I mean, this this is exactly the kind of thing they have to do. And they don't consider just in-game minutes. They look at practice minutes. They built there's there's models from that world on what load actually, what's the right way to model load. 
Our friend Luke Bourne has written papers about this, partly because he thinks that they needed to think about some things differently. And so the approach you're talking about is exactly the approach that teams are taking. Okay, let's jump to college football. The committees, the playoff committee's first rankings came out last night. And, you know, it doesn't matter because there's a lot of football to play and we'll, they'll have a lot more to base their final committee rankings on. But it's always fun to look at and talk about it. Anything jump out to you about it? Well, I was actually, I guess the one that surprised me the most, if I have this right, because I didn't study this that carefully, was I right that Clemson was number five? Yeah, Clemson falls out of the top four for this first ranking. Okay, so that only surprised me a little bit, um, because, you know, they are the defending national champion. Right. Should should that, so you're saying, even if you don't think that should matter, it probably does matter for the committee? Again, I didn't say it means that it should affect mm-hmm. their power ranking or the Massey Peabody scores, uh, you know, ranking, but the fact that they put them outside the top five, I think four was a little bit surprising to yeah. me. Yeah. I thought that the fact that they had um, Ohio State at number one. Right was a little bit surprising to me. So let me tell you about both of those things. We, you know, Because we run these sims to forecast what's going to happen in the, in the college football season, we have to have some model for the, playoff, for the playoff committee. So we started doing that a couple of years ago. A lot of people do it now, and it's kind of this very different modeling exercise. But you consider things like, do you have a variable in there? You're not trying to say what they should do. You're just saying what they're going to do. Right. And you've got five years of history now. By the way, it's not a small amount of data. They rank 25 teams five or six weeks a year for five years. You get a reasonable sense of what they're doing. We have models that include a defending national champ as a, as a dummy variable in there. And we have some models that don't. And we end up with an ensemble. But we, we predicted what was going to happen before, of course, because it's kind of what we do, before they announced. And the things that most jumped out to me, the thing that really had my eye was that Clemson-Penn State thing. Because we had Clemson nipping Penn State by one one hundredth on a on a logit. So just a fraction of the of the rating. And it was just reverse. I just I just forget Penn State was four in their rankings and Clemson yeah, was five. The actual rankings four, but we had them basically tied, but I didn't I wouldn't have known until we ran the model that that was going to come out that close. And then we also had Ohio State above LSU and we had that out there a couple of days ahead of time and, and Rufus was taking a lot of flack for it. But and you know there, there's a there's there's a lot of different pieces that go into this. The hardest part of it, I can tell you, the hardest part of it is that it's not always the same committee. So you're working with five years worth of history, but the 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 membership of the committee literally changes. And our predictions, we we did pretty well at the top of the of the 25, but we had some big misses, and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to tweak our model to capture because. They, for example, were much lower on Baylor and Minnesota than we were. They're much higher on Georgia than we were. And it feels like this may be, this is a glib take. There's a glib take. But I think this may be a little bit more of a brand name committee than we've had in the past. At least that's one explanation for some of the misses we had. Well, let me ask you a question. So I was thinking, you know, I was like the, I don't call them doomsday scenario. You agree it's very possible that a one-loss SEC team could make it to the playoffs, right? Not SEC, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, of course. Well, right. We kind of expect it, actually. Okay. Is it possible that a one, and why not, given the current rankings, why can't a one loss and a zero loss Big Ten team make it? Both, you mean? Two, Both. Two. Why not? Well, look at the current <laughs> rankings. Right. You have Ohio State and Penn State in the top four. You have Minnesota that's still undefeated. Let's play the doomsday scenario. Minnesota wins the Big Ten and Minnesota's undefeated, and Ohio State is the one-loss team in out of the Big Ten. Is there a scenario? Let's let's take total crazy scenario. Two Big Ten teams, two SEC teams. Everyone else is done. <laughs> why, why not? Well, the biggest why not is Clemson. 
So by that time, Clemson will have finished an undefeated season and won the ACC. That's just going to happen. I mean, the odds are very, very okay, high. Okay, so they're that's in. Happen. So, and, and they're the defending national champs, and that's going to matter at some point. So likely Clemson's in. So I don't think you can get two from both of those conferences. I don't so who gets squeezed out? If it's a one-loss, let's compare, a, let's say it's a one-loss Ohio State against a one-loss LSU or Alabama. Let's mm-hmm. say that's the scenario. Because let me tell you, you, I have you, no belief, they have no problem leaving out a one-loss Minnesota or Penn State against a one-loss yeah, LSU right, or Alabama. Right. But what if it's Ohio State versus LSU or Alabama, and that's the last spot? Yeah, I don't. we don't know enough right now to say what's going to happen. And you could imagine scenarios where either team gets taken or either team gets left out. But I, I agree that that's where it gets interesting is, you know, say LSU beats Alabama this weekend and then basically – and then goes on and does its thing, whether it wins or not in the in the, in the the SEC title game kind of doesn't matter. Alabama never makes the title game and they have one loss. And, you know, in a in a in many seasons that would be sufficient because it wouldn't matter. There'd be some two-loss teams other places. But if you've got a really strong top tier – and you've got some viable contenders, you might have to leave out a one-loss Alabama, even if their one loss was against an extraordinarily good LSU team. Well, let me ask you another question. What happens in this scenario? LSU beats Alabama this weekend, okay? And just, I think I've got it right. LSU could play Georgia in the SEC title game, right? We expect them to. And suppose Georgia beats LSU. So Mm -hmm. now we've got a one-loss LSU (laughs) and a one-loss Alabama. What happens? Could LSU and Alabama both be le- left off? I, now you're now you're having fun, man. You looked for the you always looking for the doomsday. No, but scenario, this one could actually. This one's not so unrealistic no. that it could happen. I'm not saying some one in a thousand shot. I LSU agree. could beat Alabama. Georgia could beat LSU. A hundred percent. You're making Maddie Dats happy there. Anytime you're, you're walking the Bulldogs into the SEC title, it's going to make Matt happy. Yeah, that's terrifically interesting. Absolutely. Because now you've got three very serious contenders out of the SEC, and it'll depend. What we always have to remember is it depends on what else is going on around the country. I mean, what happens in the Big 12? Is it Ohio State might obliterate. I mean, Penn State could obliterate Minnesota and call them out as frauds, and then Ohio State could turn around and blow out Penn State. I mean, it could be very clear by the end that there's only one team up there, or it could be very different. And, and just to be clear, Oklahoma, in your view, or Utah, or Oregon – they're totally out as a one-loss team compared to a one. Let's imagine they win their conference, they win their champion, their their championship game. Are they out against a one-loss LSU or Alabama? Let's imagine those teams don't even win their championship. No, I don't think we can say definitively. For sure, we can't say definitively that we have those kinds of models. I can say for any given future version of this team, what's the probability they make it? And then we can talk about the probability that future version occurs. I don't have it in front of me. Yep. But we can talk about the unconditional probability. What's the chance that Oklahoma makes the playoffs? Yeah, we what, still think it's point three three. One third chance that Oklahoma makes it in. We think that um, you know Utah, we had written Utah completely out, and they're up to 5% now. So Oregon, we had written Oregon completely out. They're up to 4%. So Pac-12 is a little bit more active than they used to be just on the way the dominoes have All right, fallen. so I've decided, I've, uh, it's taken me five and a half years, I've decided this is my great uh, doomsday scenario that I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for Georgia to win the SEC, LSU and Alabama to have one loss each, because one beat each other, one lost to Georgia. I'm hoping Oklahoma has one loss as the Big 12 champion. I'm hoping Utah or Oregon has one loss as the Pac-12 champion. (laughs) And I'm hoping that, let's say, Minnesota wins miraculously, undefeated, wins the Big 10. They have to put them in. Ohio State is the other one-loss team. So now there's three one-loss teams that didn't even win their conference, OSU, LSU, and Alabama. 
You've got Utah, let's call it, that won their division. You've got Oklahoma that won their division at one loss. This is absolute chaos <laughs> and is what I'm praying for. And I'm sure it has one in one millionth chance in the Massey Peabody system. Well, I, I think it, it, you've come up with a good one. The one wrinkle there that I think was unnecessary is you, you could have – you don't need Minnesota to win the Big Ten. That's unlikely, and you don't need it. So e- if either Ohio State or Penn State look really impressive for the rest of the year and yet lose to each other, and especially if it's Ohio State. If, if Penn State yeah. somehow knocks out Ohio State, goes on to wins, win the Big Big Ten – and Ohio State is sitting there with one loss to the Big Ten champion, and everyone thinks they're probably the top four team in the country. Are you going to leave them out? That's your. That's what you want to happen. So forget Minnesota. It'd be wonderful. That's fine. I mean, by the way, Penn State's going to Minnesota this weekend. We're going to we're going to find out, which is a lot of fun. But that Penn State. I mean, Penn State has just proven to be a little bit more of a team than we expected this year. A little bit more, and we're going to find out when they actually play Ohio State here in a few weeks. Well, we know as you guys, I'm sure, have built into your committee predictor. We know they would take a one-loss, let's call it Alabama, who didn't even make the title game because they did it to the yeah, committee. I know it's a happened. different group of people, but that fact has actually happened. Well, it has, but I do think we have to keep an eye on this is a different group, and we can be too sure of our models. I think one of the lessons from the first few years is that they have emphasized best team more than most deserving. One of the real themes has been they'll take best teams over most deserving, which I think surprised most of us. I mean, conference championships don't matter as much. Some of the pedigrees don't matter as much. They really want almost the power-ranking type teams. And But we don't know if that's going to persist. I mean, this is a new committee. They have new personalities, and it could be this is a non-stationary process that you're trying to model. Well, let's talk about the game that's one of the linchpins. How do you guys see LSU-Alabama this week? How does Massey Peabody see that game? Well, we think Alabama's about a three-point better team on a neutral field, and then we're going to give them you know, about three for being home So that's field. about the betting odds. The betting odds, I think, is Alabama minus six and a half. You're at six. I mean, yeah, so it's pretty calibrated pretty, there. Pretty calibrated. The uncertainty is you know, most of our data come from having Tua as the quarterback there. And he's, it's not clear that he's going to play at all, which ought to be a big advantage for LSU. LSU's had a hard time getting past this thing. It's going to be really, really interesting. But this is a different LSU team. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to have a real dog in the fight against Alabama. Do you put any weight at all? You just even mentioned it in your, but it was, you know, just colloquial verbiage. LSU has had trouble getting past this. Do you put any weight at all in that? LSU just hasn't been able to get over the Alabama hump. And and is there anything to it whatsoever that, I mean, let's say, there has to be something to it. Is it a quarter of a point? Is it two points? Is it five points? I mean, if it's anything, how do you see it? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I, I, I will say the same thing that Audie says about momentum. I'm not saying it's not there. It's just hard to, it's hard to measure or it's not big enough to, to, to measure reliably. And so I, I don't doubt that it's there. It's hard to believe that it's not there. I mean, these are kids. and um, But how do we model it? How big a factor is it? I don't think it's a big factor. I think it's in there as a small thing, but I don't think it's a big factor. Either way, I think you would agree. It's Well, let me ask a question. Just one last question on the playoffs. Depending on the outcome of the LSU-Alabama game, obviously one of the two teams is going to lose. Is it possible that Clemson stays out of the top four even after this week, if they win. In other words, let's imagine an overtime sure. loss for LSU versus sure. Alabama, but Clemson still remains on the outside. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, they, they've got a Clemson has some work to do. They just have to look good through the rest of the season. They need to win their games. Obviously, by the end, they will have won a, one of the Power Five conferences. And so they're going to do it on their own. I, I, I would I would almost expect them not to pop into the top five unless unless Alabama goes in there one of the, unless one of them routes the other one I don't expect Clemson to pop up interesting okay so why don't we turn our attention to the professional side of things. 
So, Eric Bradlow, we just got two of us in here, so maybe we can talk about more than one game. Let's see how much time do we have. But um, I'll let you drive as usual. It looks like a fun weekend to me. I don't even know where to start. There's so many games I'm interested in this week in the NFL. Um, I'll, I'll start with picking a game myself. I mean, look, the marquee game has to be the Seahawks and 49ers. Yeah, the Sunday night game. I mean, wow. I mean, I see that the 49ers are favored by six points. Um the 49ers defense has been fantastic. Forget about Jimmy Garoppolo and everything else. I mean, they've played eight games and they've given up 102 points. Now, it's almost as good as the Patriots, who have played nine games and given up 98. Of course, the Patriots just gave up 39 in, in a game. Um, I'm not. I'm going to stop doubting the 49ers at some point. I mm-hmm. think the 49ers, I don't know that they're going to cover six, but I like the 49ers in this game at home. Um, I think it's a really interesting test. And we'll see what happens. I mean, I think it's one of those games where I know Seattle's a contender. I'm interested to see if the 49ers are a real contender. I think for me, I'm going to learn more about wow. the 49ers yeah, than I'm going to learn you, about the Seahawks. You are despite out. Seattle, despite San Francisco's 8-0. You're out on the Niners yet. That's interesting. So we, we make it a 6.3 game, so we're right there on top of the line. I think the, maybe the most interesting thing is whether Seattle's going to persist with this overrunning philosophy. I mean, they've got one of the best passing offenses in the game, and they just insist on running the ball more. Russell Wilson is such an asset, seems underutilized. Maybe Having one of maybe, the great— greatest seasons a quarterback I mean at one point there was a point through like six games he had like no picks I know he's thrown one or two now but well maybe in the face of this kind of competition especially from a division rival they will almost out of necessity ratchet it up how about the Minnesota Dallas game it's a it's one of the late games uh, on Sunday afternoon it's a three-point line Dallas is favored Dallas is hosting the first thing that I thought of though Eric I have to say was 1970s playoffs I'm thinking Roger Staubach and Fran Tarkenton so this is like kid era playoff football the Vikings I mean the Hell Hell Mary Mary, Hail Mary comes from a Vikings playoff game. That was Dallas, Minnesota in like, I don't know, 74 or 75. So it's kind of fun for those reasons. But obviously we're still trying to figure out how good Dallas is. We're still kind of trying to figure out how good the Vikings are. We think they're two of the better teams in the NFC. We make it a 3.3 line, so we don't have an edge on that one either. We're right on top of the betting line. But it's a game that has implications for the NFC. It should be a fun one. Well, which game do you – who do you like in that game? Oh, I don't think I know enough to say. I don't have to go with Irish, which is just three point three. But I'm kind of sure, I'm kind of skeptical of the Cowboys, and I'm kind of it's kind of fun to pull for the Vikes. And so I'm going to say Vikes on that one. I would go with Vikings as well. I think the Vikings have shown themselves. I mean, they've beaten a bunch of good teams, really good teams. I mean, they just beat or they just lost, right? They just lost to the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. I think they just lost to the Chiefs on a field goal right at the end of the game, if I remember the a, end of a that non, game. A non Mahomes Chiefs, by the way. A non Mahomes Chiefs. I still think the Vikings are the better of those two teams. Mm-hmm. The other game, of course, it's interesting is because obviously there's now a big change in Carolina. Cam Newton's now on IR. Yeah, right. So Panthers, Packers, and the Packers laid a. What t- happened? I. What happened? So here's a chance to come back. They're favored by five. They're favored by five hosting Carolina. A Cam Newtonless Carolina. That's got to be a deflated Carolina. I don't think we're going to learn that much about the Packers in this game. If you asked most people, Packers, Panthers. At Packers, and the Packers only favored by five? That's shocking. I'm taking the Packers, and I'm taking them big. (laughs) All right, all right. That has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We do it live here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10, for Audie Weiner, who was in earlier, for Shane Jensen, who's out and about, for Eric Bradlow, who's right here with me right now. This has been Cade Massey. Thank you to Deion Simpkins, associate producer, Zach Drapkin, Matty Datz, the boss lady, 
Patty Hall. Many thanks. You guys come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>